Um, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Lauren Thatcher, and I am an adult education teacher. So I teach the high school equivalency. You're going to be silly with me now, aren't you? I have two kiddos that are almost five and seven, and I am also a wife. And recently in one of my classes, I've been teaching about the Constitution of the United States. And in the Bill of Rights, um, which was added to the Constitution before it was fully ratified in 1791, uh, it states that we as Americans have guaranteed rights of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to bear arms, and a lot of other things. Um, and according to the Constitution, we have these rights until they impede on the rights of someone else. And they are the human rights that we enjoy here as Americans. And unfortunately, sometimes that uh, makes us struggle with what this passage is, which is 1 Corinthians 8. So we're going to start 1 Corinthians 8 um, with a now we know. These words point us back to the key ideas from the previous chapters. And so in chapter two, Paul reminds us of our confidence being in Christ, who made us pure and holy like him and adopted us into freedom from sin. Later on in chapter two, Paul speaks of the spiritual wisdom that's coming from the Holy Spirit. And God gave us that Holy Spirit to help us understand him more and give us discernment to help us understand, question, examine, and apply what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us. In chapter four, Paul alludes that we have received gifts from the Holy Spirit to do a particular task. So with this in mind, that's a lot to keep in mind of what we've studied so far, um, we go into chapter eight. Um, according to MacArthur, Paul starts answering questions. Um, we started last week with the question one, and this is now the second question that was asked to Paul in previous letters. And that was kind of mentioned in chapter seven, verse one. So the second question that we're starting to answer today was about eating food offered to idols. So Paul acknowledges that all the believers had the knowledge from all the previous chapters that we just talked about. But he warns us that acting only on that knowledge could make us become proud. So why was food that was offered to idols such a big question that Paul was being asked about in a previous letter? So according to MacArthur, these sacrifices were food offerings that represented worship to that deity. At that time, it was believed that evil spirits could actually inhabit your food and cause you to become sick. Um, so this is the one reason that people actually brought their animals or their foods to the temple or whatever building they used at that time uh, to be sacrificed and actually like gained favor and blessed by that God. It cleansed the meat of those evil spirits. So if you think about it, it's like kosher food that's being blessed today. They are not going to eat food that's not been blessed um, if you're a true kosher kitchen. You also won't mix your meat and dairy, but um, so MacArthur and Swindoll also mentioned that there are three ways that an offering sacrifice was treated. So first, it was burned as a sacrifice. Second, a portion of the food was given to the priests who served in the temple. 
And third, if there was extra, the priests actually sold the rest of the meat to the market, and that was a way of income for them. Many people then bought this meat for their parties because they wanted meat that was cleansed of evil spirits. So the first two reasons should be pretty comfortable to us because they were actually practiced in the Old Testament by the Jewish people to God. So we were used to, you know, people bringing sacrifices, um, it being an honor to God, and then also um, a priest taking a portion of that to actually be fed. Because remember, in the Old Testament, we had, they didn't have their own pieces. The um, Thank you. Uh, the priests didn't have their own stuff, so they actually got offerings from the people, and that was like their tithe and their like piece of it. So eating meat offered to idols was a big issue because according to Pryor, it pervaded every area of life. So all festivals, all non-believing family celebrations, and community life served the meat that was offered to idols because they wanted clean meat. <laughs> And they honestly believed that you could become sick or um, enslaved by evil things if you did not have clean meat. So there are now two groups. The first group includes the people that have been saved from the lifestyle of sin, and they cannot eat that meat for fear of reverting to their own ways. The second group are those who know evil spirits and you know, the, all those extra deities, they just don't exist. So it doesn't matter. Those are the two groups that are happening here in the church at the time. So according to MacArthur, Paul is directing his instruction to the group that knows and is more spiritually mature about and is about the other group who was weaker. So he's speaking to one group about the other group. Paul knows these mature believers have the knowledge, and according to MacArthur, those mature believers uh, were felt like they had the freedom to go to a party at the temple. They felt like they could go to a gathering where meat was being served. They felt like they could eat that meat with their friends or family at you know non-believing events. And these believers um, felt the freedom to buy meat that had been offered to idols because, hey, it's just meat. Um, I found it interesting that prior notes um, that Paul didn't give them a hard, no, just don't do it. Like a legalistic person would, you know, you either abstain from everything or you do it. Um, so this was not a hard or harsh thing from Paul. If Paul had made a hard, hard no line, then the Corinthian believers would have been cutting themselves completely off from society, family, and then they would end up living in their Christian bubble alone. Um, Paul also did not give consent to the mature believers that they could just continue in their liberty for liberty's sake. Paul, as stated in prior, knew that there were too many divisions already within the church in Corinth and was advocating for loving others more than themselves. Does having knowledge make us feel good, sometimes even a little powerful? According to Swindoll, Paul accuses the mature believers of being proud and overstepping bounds, just like they had in chapter 5. In chapter 6, verse 12 and 19 through and 20, Paul talks about things being lawful, but are not always helpful and not something to be dominated by. 
In this instance, in chapter six, he was referring to the sexual immorality within the church and that believers had been given freedom so that we can love others. Then Paula encourages and chastises the mature believers that love builds up. According to the Amplified Version, the building up of love encourages others to grow in wisdom because love unselfishly seeks the best for the other. I love that. Love encourages others to grow in wisdom because love unselfishly seeks the best for the other. Felt like that had a little extra meaning after the marriage retreat this weekend, uh, which is, was also a really cool thing. Uh, MacArthur says that these believers were strong in their doctrine, but weak in their love. They were strong in their self-love and weak in their brotherly love. All right, we're going to see Jesus's example from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So that was Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, we see this from the verses that we are about, that we are to be humble like Christ, who put love and his Father's interests above his own desires and interests. Prior summed up chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, with the statement, All right. <laughs> All right. Come I don't know what happened. My thing just. All right. So prior summed up chapter eight, verses one through three with the statement, when a Christian's character is controlled by love and is growing in true knowledge, he or she is no longer concerned with how well he or she knows God. The lack of caring about acquiring knowledge, but just caring about who God is and loving others is the proof that you love God. And that was from um, prior. The next se section of the passage, verses four through six, focuses that there is only one true God. 
All right, we're going to look at Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them and everyone who trusts in them. That was Psalm 115, four through seven. So let's compare our God to those verses and those idols. So sometimes it may seem like these idols could be God. And Ryan mentions that sometimes... I had some slight problems with my last copy where everything that I changed, it decided to delete. So can our God, does our God have a mouth? Can it speak? Can he speak? We might not hear him audibly anymore, but he does speak. Does he see? Those idols don't. Can he hear us? I mean, we don't want him to always smell us, but he says that we're the actions that we do are like a sweet incense to him. Can he feel? I mean, all these things were kind of more so through Jesus, but it's hard to think of God the Father up there and being able to feel and smell and speak and walk. But Jesus, who is his son and was through us, is that person. So it sometimes may seem like these idols are all gods. Ryrie mentions that sometimes demons can be actually behind an idol that make it seem more godlike. There might be like those circumstances that just make it feel like that might be a real thing. Um, even though there are these instances where they seem godlike, in verse six, it says, There is only one God who created all things and sustains all things, and there is only one Jesus who gave us life and redeemed us. MacArthur reminds us that these newer Christians were saved out of paganism, and they're still working through who their God is, and that he is that one true God. I mean, these are baby believers. When you're first saved, you don't have like all of those experiences of who God is in your life. That comes with maturity. So, I mean, just got to be gracious till they get to see who God really is. I found it interesting that Pryor noted that the word for idols, idola, means copies. I didn't know that. They're just empty copies. The last part of this chapter focuses in on the fact that these weaker believers are still our brothers and sisters in Christ and how they should be treated. We talk about in verses 7 through 13. So in verse seven, since not all have this knowledge that idols are fake and meaningless, and some have been saved out of this lifestyle, they struggle and feel shame for partaking in this food. The Amplified added the idea that some believers were worried that they might violate their new faith accidentally if they ate the wrong meat. So kind of like a better safe than sorry mentality, I'm going to just stay away from from that. When they didn't realize was that in Mark 7, 19, it says, that was Mark 7, 19, since it enters not his heart, 
but his but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declares all food clean. This shows that it's just meat and there's no meaning behind it except that it's food that will nourish and pass through the body. According to the Amplified Bible, that means no harm would come to the person because the sacrifice was to a meaningless and fake God. Verse eight, food will not send us from God or bring us closer to God. It doesn't matter whether we eat meat or not. It's just meat. MacArthur reminds us that meat is a spiritually neutral thing. It was never about the meat. It was about the knowledge of who our God is and how do mature believers deal with new believers who don't know God like they do yet. I'll repeat that for you because I really like that. So this is from MacArthur. Um, It was about the knowledge of who our God is and how do mature believers deal with new believers who do not know God like they do yet. Verse 9 and 10, but make sure your knowledge and liberty to eat doesn't cause someone to be tempted into sin because he was weak and violated his own convictions. MacArthur talked about the eating of meat not as being the wrong. The sin and the wrong came when the new believer chose not to listen to their conscience and is now full of shame and guilt for partaking in the meat. Ryrie men- mentions Galatians 5.13. It was Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We are challenged to do all things out of love for others, which means sometimes lim- limiting what I feel like I can do because it would hurt my newer brother or sister in Christ. According to Pryor, the weaker person is someone who is hypersensitive, meaning they cut out all the gray or doubtful areas so they don't get it wrong with God and harm their relationship with him. God's Paul's goal is that this weaker believer will eventually grow and mature in their faith and not stay there in that weaker state. This is kind of why legalism doesn't fall into this category, unless we're calling all legalists weaker Christians. Pryor also challenges us to see our fellow believers as people who Christ died for too. They were in the same state in a relationship to God as we were when we were saved. We're just further along the path than they are. So this is for weaker and newer believers. This is not legalism where we have a list of things we won't do because good Christians don't do those things or we could offend someone else. I was challenged by Swindoll as he gave several examples and responses the mature believer could have. After mentioning them, he said that the responses that we had to these situations reveal our true attitudes. How humbling. So some questions you can ask yourself are, do I and whatever I'm doing, or do I do me and whatever my freedom allows? Do I avoid dealing with new believers? Or do I love 
by sacrificing my desires and disciple that new believer to maturity with grace and patience. In America, we love our rights. It's almost like an entitlement that was like ingrained into us. But we have a higher calling. We're called to love God and love others with a love that builds up and encourages their walk with the Lord. Even if that means our love for them will restrict what allow what we allow ourselves to do. In studying this, I learned it's not about compliance. That was a big one for me. It's not about what we're going to do to stay pure by not doing this list of things and staying in our Christian bubble. And it's not about mature believers doing what they want because they're having a tantrum and they want it a certain way. So when deciding if a freedom or a liberty is available to you, these next questions should be pondered to give yourself a heart check. It's not about me. It's about God and it's about his glory. I loved this heart check that MacArthur gave and I just ran out of time to make it as a bookmark for you. So eventually I will try and get this to you. Excess. Is the activity a habit or a necessary or just an extra that you would be willing to give up? Expediency. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Is what I want to do helpful and useful or just desirable? Emulation. Are we acting like Christ would act? I think of the 90s WWJD bracelets. It's kind of my era right there. Uh, it was a big thing in high school to wear those. Are we examples? Are we going to be a good example for a newer Christian doing this? Evangelism. Is my testimony going to be helped or hindered? Edification. Will this make me spiritually stronger? Exaltation, will God get the glory for what I'm doing? Mm 